welcome to the FinTech Podcast. We have hit our 20th episode today. So to catch up on the latest updates, be sure to follow us and check out our socials at FinTechMag. So the conversation we are having today is all about embedded finance. So we sat down with Robert Courtright, CEO of Drive Wealth, to find out more. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you having the time to talk with me. Sure. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, I'm Bob Courtright. I'm the CEO and founder of Drive Wealth. Drive Wealth is, is a platform that basically helps enable people around the world to invest and save in the U.S. securities market and in the future uh, other markets as well. So we try to make it easy and affordable to access the U.S. securities market and build their own portfolio uh, and allow them to re- enable really interesting products for their, their local customers. That's great. Could you actually just maybe talk for a moment about what inspired you to build Drive Wealth? Absolutely. So, you know, this is a long story in a way because I've been in the financial services industry for quite some time. Spent the first half of my career in most investment banks and big banks, you know, as a trader, uh, running running portfolio management, running risk management, and really got a firsthand taste of, of um, how the value of multi-asset, what big investors do and how, how we manage our money. And as time went on, you know, I've got a much more exposure to the retail marketplace as well. In areas like I worked at Merrill Lynch for a number of years as, as running their FX department. Uh, I worked in a hedge fund at First Chicago Advisory running a portfolio for them. So we really got a firsthand look at the power of retail aggregation, the power of the retail clients. So I found it very interesting. And then in 1999, when Clinton signed the Commodity Modernization Act, we saw a whole uprising of, of retail trading platforms like IG Index, CMC in Europe, you have Gain Capital, FXCM here. And I co-founded a company called FX Solutions and started to build a platform for retail traders to trade FX. That eventually matured into SCFD trading as well. We got a really good feel for what the retail customer wanted to do. Um, and, and basically from there, uh, it started to grow. Obviously, electronic trading was coming into the fore, right? In the past, people used to basically call up, request for quote. We used to call it for a quote. And now all of a sudden, the market kind of flipped on its head. And people were streaming prices to the market and allowing the customer to make the decision when they when they wanted and where they wanted to trade. So an interesting change of events, which required a lot of different infrastructure uh, and really, really algorithmic ways to manage that type of flow. We, we created another company a couple of years later called Financial Labs, which really built state of the art algorithmic infrastructure to handle electronic flow and manage it in, in a way that hadn't been done in the past. So we ended up selling that company to Bank of America in 2006 continued to manage FX solutions. So eventually we merged our company with a company called City Index in London. Uh, and they managed obviously global FX and CFDs as well. And we, re- we realized that really what happened was around the world, there wasn't that much uh, really affordable access to the US securities market. Uh, here people were trading the uh, US market through what we called CFDs, contracts for difference. Uh, they didn't really own the actual security. And one of the reasons was, one, it was hard to, hard to access the market and it was costly, right? And so we basically understood, hey, let's try to build a new uh, platform to allow people to start the underbanked to the underdeveloped countries. We're really growing quite rapidly at the time. This is 2010, 11, 12, after the financial crisis. If you remember, central banks were printing a lot of money. We saw the emerging markets really growing in affluence. Smartphones were coming to the fore. The proliferation of smartphones was tremendous, especially in Asia. And we saw these applications starting to come about where they could actually work with financial services on the phone, whether it was payments or lending and things like that. 
Uh, and then that prop, you know, companies like Alibaba and e-commerce came up and financial started to grow out of that, Tencent. Uh, so we had this really plethora of new ways to access global uh, assets and, and information around the world. Uh, and the one thing we thought was is that we could really basically help people um, diversify their portfolios through through an application. We had the, you know, we in, in 2012-11, we saw the, you know, companies in the lending areas come up, lending, you know, trees started to, or lending clubs started to evolve. Uh, and then late in 2010-11, we saw Betterment Ro and, and Wealthfront, uh, you know, start to do robo type things. Robinhood certainly made a huge impact, a great user experience, easy, affordable way to trade stocks. And then obviously Acorns and Stash came along for those to help savings and investments. So there was a lot of trends in the digital transformation time once the financial crisis got through uh, that was really showing that people were really wanted to do and manage their finances on their phone. And I think that, that, that is accelerating today. I think we're in the early game, the early stages. And what I call a movement from brokerage to embedded finance, which I think we'll talk more about. Uh, and that's really what spurred me on to say, hey, I need to build a modern infrastructure to allow these people to enable, or our partners at least, to enable really cool investing products uh, for the retail market around the world. Because this was not only just a U.S. market trend, this was a global trend. It sounds amazing. The journey that you've already had. Um, I suppose for my next question, how can consumers benefit from the availability of fractional trading? Well, that's all part of it, right? I mean, we very early on from our FX days and CFD days, we knew that we really had to create a, a product that customers could afford to access at, at their level of financial stability or right, their financial affluence, right? So if, if someone wanted to buy a stock or really, there's really, well, let me go back and say there's three real pillars that we see in terms of what's really important for people to invest, right? At least to spark their investing journey. It's being able to one, take advantage of compound interest, which we all know as, as you uh, apply money to the markets over time, dividends, re, you know, obviously recapitalization, stock splits, these things really start to compound the value of your investment. The other thing was diversification. It was really critically important that you had a diversified portfolio, right? Because stock picking by itself is a very difficult thing, even, you know, even for the pros. And the last thing, right, was dollar cost averaging. People needed to be able to put money to work when they could and what they could afford. So the first thing we did was, you know, on top of, uh, you know, trying to get a license, a full carrying broker dealer license at Drive Wealth, we also wanted to be able to do fractional trading, uh, which meant we wanted to create a, a ability for customers to trade notionally based on the dollar or currency amount they had in, in, in their wallet or what they could afford at that time, but do it consistently over time. And we found that over time, that's been the most productive way to invest. Right, you pick a stock, a select group of stocks that you like, and you put a little money to them every time chance you get. So that's really the the, the idea around notional trading or, or fractional shares, as people call it. That's great. That's really interesting. I suppose one, one thing as well for my my, my next point is um, Drive Wealth works with um, Revlu in the UK. Um, what what are the origins of that relationship, and why has it been important? Well, it's 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 a great <laughs> question because we think you know, like I said, this is a global trend. I mean, what's going on is tremendous in the sense that people are building these financial services infrastructures or ecosystems to help their customers manage manage their finances in a more efficient way. And I think this is going to evolve over the next decade in a really interesting way with AI and machine learning and the such. 
But so working with Revolut, I mean, Revolut started with payments and transfer of monies to friends and, and family or paying bills. And then they also started to get into uh, credit card and, and debit card businesses. But, you know, the, the real whole ecosystem around financial services is not only just borrowing money or paying your bills, it's also saving and investing for the future. Um, and Revolut, just like a number of companies around the world, have recognized that they needed to build an ecosystem holistically around the customer uh, that allows them to do the things they need to do as they go through their financial life, right? So we started working with Revolut very early on in terms of their goals, in terms of investing in savings to, to add on to their product set for their customer. It's been a great success. They've done an amazing job, obviously, and one of their goals is to be a global financial services company. Um, and so we're trying to work with them and, and do that around the world. Obviously, the regulatory environment is different in different countries. Um, that's something Drive Wealth works very hard at around the different parts of the world and what's allowed and what's not allowed and working with the regulatory bodies to make sure that we're regulatory compliant so we can support our customers and their goals of offering, you know, diverse investments to their customers. But Revolut, you know, Revolut's now probably coming to the U.S. in a short period of time, starting to offer banking, we'll offer investing as well. Uh, and we just think that's that's the ecosystems that are developing. It's more of a holistic view of the customer and customizing things for them in terms of what their financial needs are at the moment versus where the old institutional banks, the legacy players are much more product centric, right? They think of things in very product silos, banking, I mean, say mortgages, lending, obviously, uh, checking accounts, savings accounts, very, very, and that's one of the problems. They don't have a lot of uh, data around the customer. If you go apply for a mortgage saying you may have a savings and a brokerage account there, they have no idea what 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 your really profile profile is. I think this new world is much more holistic in treating the customer with a much better user experience. And I think that's the challenge for the banks is to become better at, at dealing with the customer and his personal financial needs versus selling him a product. And I think Revolut's done an amazing job at that. Just to move on for a moment, Bob, a lot of listeners or a lot of fintech listeners are aware that Drive Wealth publishes a quarterly trends report. Um, what, what were some of the key findings of the Q2 report, you know, particularly from your partnerships outside the U.S.? Yeah, so I, what we found is that people are really interested. I mean, listen, the world's changing a lot, right? In, in the last decade, we call it digital transformation we mentioned before. But there's been a lot of, since the financial crisis, there's been a lot of money pumping by the central banks, right? Interest rates around the world have come towards almost zero in a lot of cases, sometimes negative, right? And people are looking for yield. But on the other side, on the flip side, is these great brands that we talk about, the Apples and the Amazons and the Googles and the Alibabas, they're doing business all over the world and they're marketing their products all over the world, right? So people are seeing their products, they're enjoying consuming their products, these guys are probably spending more money, and on the, just referring to the U.S. companies, they're probably spending more money outside the U.S. in marketing their products than they are inside the U.S. So people want to own these great companies. Just look at the performance of the NASDAQ over the last couple of years, right, or what's even done recently. So people want to own these brands. I think the market's been more globalized now, even though with the pandemic, people have kind of gotten back to a more of an inclusive type thought by country by country to kind of clamp down on the pandemic. But in a financial services world, it's almost more global today that people want to have a diversified investment base. I'll give you a good example. For instance, in India, we do a lot of work. Up until recently, less than 1% of all assets inside India were invested outside the country. 
um, that's an amazing opportunity for them. You know, obviously they've known to be buying purchases of big purchases of gold and obviously they buy some of their local stock markets, but their stock market's quite small relative to the rest of the world, especially the United States. So the, and they're big consumers of Amazon and Apple and these things. So they, they want to participate in the world in terms of investments. And obviously people are chasing yields and want to diversify their assets in financial ways. So it, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, now that we've had these trends, interest rates are zero, people are searching for yield. It's a global world. People are consuming these goods all over the world. They want to own those, those things that they're consuming. And not only that, it's great for the companies themselves because now they can really broaden their shareholder base, right? They can bring in new capital, fresh capital. The, the thing I love about it is, is that, you know, now your loyal, your loyal consumers are becoming loyal shareholders as well, which is great for the companies, right? They're much more long-term holders of stock than they are than institutional, which is typically a lot, you know, turnover a lot quicker than, than, than a retail trader. So there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool things going on from a global perspective in terms of having people own shares of, of U.S. St stocks no matter where they are in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you just said, you know, it's something you're still maintaining that duration, you know, especially during um, during COVID and, you know, still trying to maintain these success, excuse me, um, the success at the moment um, through yeah. what seems to be a very challenging time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny when, when the pandemic first hit, you, you heard a lot about Robinhood and, and and guys like you know partners of Drive Wealth, you know stocks moving around quite. And it was a bit true to some extent, right? They were trading some lower price stocks, which has nothing to do with notional trading, by the way. Fractional trading just allows you to notionalize a portfolio. Um, there's a there's a rule we call pattern day trading, right? You need to have at least twenty five thousand dollars in your account to be a pattern day trader. And that means to buy and sell stock on, on, a, on a much more frequent basis. And that's not what people are. If, if you're trading fractional shares, you're you probably don't have twenty five thousand dollars in your account. This is what's <clears throat> excuse me great about it is because it allows people that want to start with a couple hundred dollars build a diversified portfolio. But back to my point, what the interesting thing we saw was. Yeah, in the, in the very early stages of the pandemic in the second quarter, people were trading a lot of the lower price stocks and, you know, with Hertz and, and a couple of others, they were pushing those around. Obviously, Tesla's been very popular, but in a more higher price stock. But in the third quarter, we saw a kind of a shift. People started to mature and buy really quality companies like Apple and Amazon uh, in a fractional way. So it really was interesting. And then the other thing we saw that was interesting is in the U.S., there's much more bias to buy ETFs. And individual securities, where in the international market, we definitely see them buying brand name companies. Um, so I think because of the fact that this is the first time they've really had affordable access to a very user-friendly device, digital device to buy these stocks, that they're obviously picking up the companies that they know and admire and, and, and have been consuming for a long time. I think ETFs will become a little more popular globally eventually as people start to be able to have this free access to these great companies and they build out their portfolio. And then when they when they start wanting to really make really portfolio decisions, they'll start adding ETFs to that. But ETFs are much more prominent here in the U.S. than we've seen internationally. That's, that's great, Bob. A topic to move on to for a second. You know, we've had um, discussion just then about, you know, how we've tried to evolve in the fintech industry at the moment with COVID and really sort of move on with the current situations uh, we are facing. I suppose for a second, I'd just like to talk about Im embedded finance. Uh, you know, it's one of one of those pieces of terminology that's being thrown around, you know, more often than none. 
um, and it means different things to different companies. So, what is your definition of embedded finance? No, I, I love I love the term embedded finance. We've been talking about it for a couple of years here at, at DriveWealth. It's kind of our mission, right? We think this is the next evolution of finance, uh, financial services. Quite frankly, where really the way I look at it is is, is taking someone's individual customer uh, financial behaviors or spending patterns or whatever consumption behaviors that they have and translating it into a really good, efficient financial plan for them for the long-term and the short-term, right? So I'll give you an example. That's why I love these ecosystems that are evolving where it gives customers really affordable options in terms of managing their finance. And, and, and we'll get into data in a second, but my idea here is that embedded finance takes someone's, you know, no matter where they are in their financial journey, it takes their basically behaviors and, and models it into something that's much more efficient in the use of their of the use of the funds that they do have. Credit card consolidation, we've seen this going on. You know, SoFi's done a great job talking about uh, obviously financing student loans, for instance, uh, and getting cheaper. But once you have that savings, right, you take that savings and you invest it somewhere else. You just don't use it as, as disposable income. So you start to really develop a plan. And I think what all this new data around this, the data engineering, we're doing a lot around data engineering, AI, machine learning to help people think about, okay, I've saved, you know, another good example is insurance. You know, if you're being healthy, and we call it the health, wealth, and happiness trend, right? If you're being healthy, your insurance rates should go down. But if your insurance rates are going down, you should take that savings and apply it to your long-term investment strategy because you're gonna live longer if you're living a happy and healthy life. Um, so these are all important things that I think embedded finance is going to really make a big impact on. Uh, they're going to create ecosystems that are very customized to the individual's behaviors, the way they spend money. Stockbacks, another example. If you have a certain, you know, bunch of loyal things that you consume from these different companies, getting getting rewarded for that through stock and building a portfolio around those consumptions as a loyal consumer and a loyal customer is a really cool, engaging thing. It helps the company because it rewards their, their loyal customers and it helps the customer because they're being rewarded with, with some type of portfolio that they can take on in their future financial life. So embedded finance to me is really building a customized uh, financial plan around the way you live your life. Being there when you need a certain product at an affordable cost that fits your needs at that given time, um, the ecosystem of embedded finance will provide that for you. That's great. I think um, what you've just mentioned there is obviously trying to break down what embedded finance is, especially for some of our listeners who aren't necessarily experts in the field, you know, they want to try and just gain a better understanding. So just a point to move on to for a second there, Bob. With embedded finance, how does Drive Wealth contribute to this future of embedded finance? Yeah, so that, you know, that's that's at the heart of our mission, right? Our heart of our mission is to expose the brokerage infrastructure in a way that enables a customer or, or a partner's customers, I should say, uh, to live a better, more efficient financial life. You know, most of us have busy lives and busy careers and whatever we're doing. And, you know, finances are kind of a second and afterthought, right? And a lot of us aren't stock pickers and analysts and things like that. So what it really does is for us to expose uh, through our APIs or our basically the brokerage savings and investment capabilities is to create all kinds of things that the customer needs to manage a better financial life. So whether they want to basically, you know, build a diversified portfolio uh, of stocks uh, or theme-based stocks or basically a robo-product, uh, an advisor wants to manage his customers more specific, more customized across 
thousands or tens of million customers in a much more customized way. So they all get rebalanced at different times uh, based on their needs or, or their, their financial goals. It's just treating people in a much more, our, our capabilities allow people to be treated much more in a customized way. And, and, and again, in a much more engaging, unique way, right? Stock back, for instance. Literally, if you're going and you're going, you have a habit of going to Starbucks every day and picking up your morning coffee, if you get 50, 60 cents worth of Starbucks stocks every day, it adds up. Mm-hmm. It adds up. So, you know, those are things that we can enable. Uh, and it's funny because our partners are just as, as powerful in thinking about the future, right, in terms of what their customers need because they have the data. We see the general data of our whole customer base. That's why I can talk to you about the third, you know, the third quarter retail trends because we see it as an aggregated data of customer base. But these guys really understand their customers. I think the unique thing about the fintechs is that they really understand again holistically the customer, and they do a lot of good work around the data of the customer and how to provide better service to the customer based on their behaviors. Um, again, that's the struggle with the legacy players. They're not as connected because of the way that the product-centric mentality has been. Products are very you know, siloed, as I said before. Uh, very hard for them to get a handle on, on the holistic life of the customer, the financial life of a customer. Um, and embedded finance is really going to make it uh, much more customized and much more efficient for a customer the way they manage their money throughout their life. That's great, Bob. Um, just that you've broken it down there and um, obviously just given our listeners a better understanding of how drive wealth contributes to embedded finance and how you're really making it work in the fintech industry um i we've kind of come towards the end of um the planned conversation um that we were going to have today is there anything that you would like to mention in this time um you know any any topics that you'd like to talk about in any um any more depth or anything else in particular well i just you know i think the important thing to understand is this is a global this is a global phenomenon um which i think is really powerful because, you know, you've got people all over the world, you know, taking their money and investing where they think it's going to be treated best. And I think it's going to be the customization around the individual is going to raise the standard of living, raise the affluence of these customers to be better, obviously, consumers of goods, but lead a better life, right, and, and, and make better decisions. It's hard for people, like I said, in their daily lives, all the things they have to worry about beyond their finances, uh, to focus and become really good investors. But these ecosystems, which I call the digital wallets or the applications that, that, cut, you know, that cater to people's financial needs, are going to really improve the quality of life and, and, and the quality of person's personal financial journey uh, to the point where I think they'll live a better life. And I think it will also improve the capital markets in the sense that capital will flow to the good companies, the people that people really respect and consume. And, and I think it'll just make everyone better stewards of their own business and their own finances. So I, I, I think this trend is going to be really, really interesting over the next decade and, and how embedded finance changes the whole financial landscape around the world. A lot of people listening, you know, some, some like I just said before, you know, they're very new to learning about fintech. Some of them are experts like yourself, but really seeing the shape of embedded finance is going to change or develop over the next few months, especially with everything else going on. It's, it's going to be interesting. I do wonder where things are going to be in, let's say, you know, six to 12 months time. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the one notion of brokerage, when people think about brokerage, it's opening up a brokerage account, sitting, you know, whatever you can afford to the brokerage and then trying to manage your money or give it to a manager, right? This is, this, this is what I call embedded finance. It's going to become a daily occurrence. It's, every action you take financially will be impacted, will impact your financial future. 
and I think and I hope that, you know, with AI and a lot of this machine learning and data will become much better at managing your day-to-day -day affairs. And over time, that will have a tremendous impact uh, on, on the value of your, of your possessions and, and your financial, you know, portfolio uh, to make you live a better life. So that's, that's why I think the power of it is. It becomes a much more, you know, people think about finances, they really get to it once a month or once every six months or whatever it is, or, or they're just afraid to look at it at all. But I think now with a lot of these great ecosystems and wallets that are being developed, you're managing your finances, maybe not so much actively, but, you know, with, with the help of these, of these partners, uh, that it's, it's almost become a daily occurrence. Bob, you know, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Is there anything else that you'd like to speak about um, or any, any questions that you've got? No, thanks, Charlotte. I appreciate the time. I think, you know, embedded finance is going to become a really, really interesting and powerful thing for all consumers. And uh, again, it's great because it's, it's it's a real global event and it's a global the globalization of, of financial services. I think it's going to be good for everybody. I'm I'm pretty pretty positive that that you know the the financial service industry is going to continue to evolve in a way that really helps the the, the end consumer uh, live a better financial life. Absolutely, I would I would totally agree on that. It's um, a very positive attitude that we need to keep at the moment, especially for different um, fintech companies and just actually the the industry in general. There seems to be a lot of companies at the start of the pandemic did have to, I suppose, try and rebuild um, from the knock-on effect that the pandemic had at the start. Um, but we're now seeing a lot of companies are thriving. They are improving each day, you know, and kind of actually keeping the momentum going. Right. I think it's good for, I mean, it may, it's making the legacy players better. They're recognizing the treat the customer better. I mean, you know, you know, the attitude towards banks and, and the fees and stuff like that. People, people become upset about it and want to be, they want to be treated better, right? And then, and then the great holistic viewpoint of the fintechs, treating people as as customers and really treating the whole person financially. Um, mm -hmm. I think all these things are going to lead to a better, better result in the end of the day for the customer. So, um, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that embedded finance, AI, and all these things are going to really change the affluence of most people's lives around the world. Over the, over the next decade you know embedded finance it's something that we've not really delved into on on our podcast yeah, no, yet. i think people are confused by it like what embedded mm. finance, what is that right i talk about it and it's not it's you know between professionals it makes sense i say you know the idea of brokerage is, is an old idea right an mm. idea that you you know you finally come to some affluence where you feel like you can write a five thousand dollar or five thousand pound check to a broker to handle your money, and unless you have that, you're out of the you're out of the financial ecosystem for you know until they get until you come to that point, which is the problem, right? We're not educating and engaging these people enough at an early stage where they can afford to make some mistakes. They can learn by their doing, is learn by by engaging with this process and seeing how it works when they only have a little bit money at risk. If you're putting twenty five dollars a week away in a portfolio that's diversified and you're seeing how it manages how it performs and you make a Adjustments, that's a powerful thing for a young person to go through um, versus waiting till they have enough money that they feel like they can, you know, and, and they have enough, you know, they've overcome the fear of writing a big check out of their account that they've saved so hard for to send it to some person they don't know to manage it, right? Because even $5,000 or 5,000 pounds to an institution doesn't mean very much, unfortunately. It's not something they're going to go, oh, look at this big investor of 5,000 bucks, but here we're going to really pay attention. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, so I think this, that's whole, that's why I think embedded finance is so powerful, right? Everyone's going to be treated the same because it's not going to look at the amount of money you have. It's going to look at the diversification, your patterns of spending, the what you, how you live your life. 
and it's going to try to improve on those things and make those much more you know profitable and rewarding no that's incredibly important to engage people at the earliest stage you can but the other powerful thing for young investors is time uh, the, the, these these young investors have time that's the amazing thing if they just put a little together it's a, if you ever look at the charts where if you start investing at 25 versus 30 35 it's incredible the the difference right in terms of when you start um, and the, the big deal here is to get people to start without their fear and to be able to feel not uncomfortable that, oh, I don't have enough money to start. That's, that doesn't matter. You have 20 bucks, start. So that, you know, th these are powerful things that we got to take advantage of, right? And these are habits that can be, you know, developed over time. Once you start, right, and you do a habit for a while, it becomes a nice habit and you get used to putting $50 a month away or $100 a month away. You do that at 25 versus you do that at 45, it's hugely different. Understanding the, the trend towards embedded finance mm. and take away people's fears about how it can improve your financial life is really critical. And that's what's going on out there. People talk about day traders and kid millennials and the US and all that, but there's a much different, this under the currents, there's a much better thing happening than that. And that's people are starting to feel comfortable getting involved. And part of it's because they, they, they have to search for yield, right? When your bank's charging you to put money in the bank, that's not a comfortable position to be in for your future finances. So people are looking for ways to build a diversified portfolio that can, can improve their life over time and make the effort of putting money away worth it. And then, then the, the last thing you always hear about is, is everyone's becoming a financial services company. And we definitely see that happening. You know, that, you know, we, when you see telecoms and everybody, you know, starting to build the digital wallets and want to service their customer in a more broad way than they just do in their specific vertical. Um, it's really interesting how people are really trying to add product and, and really uh, at the touch of the customer, give them more, more choice and improve their financial lives. Uh, I give you that example of health, wealth, and happiness, right? Insurance companies, thinking about, hey, if you're living an active lifestyle, they give you a Fitbit or whatever they do. Uh, you have your Apple watch and they're tracking your behavior. And if you're being active and healthy, they want to reduce your insurance costs so they can apply that money to something else to save for the future, right? Put that mm -hmm. in a portfolio, put that in a robo product or something because they don't want you to go out and just spend it, right? They don't <laughs> want you to leave as a customer. But now they've created a customer that not only has an insurance policy, but he has an investment account with you. So he's got two relationships now. And that relationship basically says, hey, I'm not only worried about your health today, I'm also worried about how you're going to be able to live your life with, you know, financially secure freedom, with financial freedom in the future. And, and we see that with telecom companies too. You know, you're a good customer. We want to reward you in different ways. Maybe it's through their own stock or, you know, if you're an active customer on their products, give you other things that they can affordably give you. Not so much to spend someplace else, but just to make your life a lot better. Bob, thank you. Thank you so much for having the time to talk with me today. I think this is definitely one that um, finding out, like we've discussed, current trends, things that are going on that I suppose some consumers don't necessarily know about or they don't have as much knowledge about it. So I think today a lot of our listeners are going to be intrigued with what's what's been discussed. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Charlotte. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much.